Grab your copy of God's Word or open your app, and we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 41 as we continue our series in the book of Isaiah. This is the 18th message. We've got a lot to go, um, but it is good to be in the book of Isaiah. How many of you have never studied through Isaiah all the way through before? You've never done this. This is new. All right. Cool. Very good. Well, we hope you can uh, read ahead and uh, keep us on our toes as we prepare uh, messages. The next two weeks, uh, we'll take a slight detour for Christmas. And then on January 1st, yes, we are meeting on New Year's Day. We will dive back into the next two chapters of Isaiah after chapter 41. But if you're there in Isaiah 41, can I ask you to stand as a way to honor the reading of God's word? Isaiah chapter 41. Please stand with me. We'll read all of chapter 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw, together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, Yahweh your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares Yahweh. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in Yahweh, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, Yahweh, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs. 
says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, He is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word this morning in the book of Isaiah. We thank you that you have inspired this and that it is breathed out from your very lips through the pen of Isaiah to our eyes and ears this morning. So we ask for you to work for you to apply this to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives. Father, I pray that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, and Lord, that we would know that we need not be afraid. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask a silly question. (laughs) Have you ever been afraid? Have you been afraid in 2016? Have you been afraid this week? What were you afraid of? What are some things that we are afraid of? Spiders. The unknown. Loss. We fear loss. Conflict. Failure, death, public speaking, (laughs) me too, pain, did you just call me a liar, John? I can hear you, (laughs) he does not, he does not fear, (laughs) Yes, we all, we all fear things. In fact, um, I would dare say we're a fearful people um, if we stop and think about it. Um, our default as human beings actually, I think, is to fear. Now, today what we're going to talk about in Isaiah 41 is not like the good side of fear, right? Like teaching your kids that they shouldn't be fearless to run in the middle of the street. That's, they should be afraid to some extent, right, of cars in the street, um, in fact, we're not even going to talk about a, a clear teaching in Scripture that we fear God because it's not really um, talked about too much here. But what we are going to talk about are the fears that most of you just said. Probably not spiders, but um, we're going to talk about the, the fears that we share as human beings of loss, failure, death, um, of all of these things um, that we live uh, oftentimes in fear of. You know, anxiety, um, worry, um, those things are the road to fear. Right? In fact, you could say that they are, in some sense, fear. Um, and so this touches on basically every day of our lives, right? Um, at work, at home, in the neighborhood, at school, 
on the freeway, on the freeway, on the freeway, right? uh, in the hospital. Um, we face fear um, all of the time. And today I want us to see from Isaiah 41, I want us to see why God's people didn't need to fear even in the context of chapter 41 and why God's people today, you and me, if you trust Jesus, why we don't need to fear either. Uh, on the list of most common commands in the Bible, right up there with praise the Lord is the command not to fear. Uh, by my count, last night there were at least a hundred times, more than a hundred times throughout Scripture, a person or a group of people are told something like, do not be afraid or have no fear or to fear not. In fact, we see that in the Christmas story several times. And so I want us to, to see that. And remember, last week, Pastor Ron started um, in chapter 40, and we're now in the second part of the book of Isaiah. Um, the first part, Isaiah was speaking to um, the people in the present, in the, the late 8th century, about uh, what was happening with the Assyrians attacking. The second half of Isaiah is Isaiah prophesying, predicting ahead of time, and speaking to people that would be alive long after he died, that were alive during the Babylonian captivity. So at least 150 years later. So the, the bad guys have changed, but uh, Jerusalem has fallen. There is no king of Israel anymore, and the peoples are scattered throughout the Babylonian empire. And it is in that context that Isaiah says in chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people. And that, that, uh, that comfort message continues throughout the rest of the book, and we'll even see it here today in chapter 41. So think of this, that Isaiah is writing to his people in the future um, who are captive. They're gone from their place. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins, and they are uh, captive in a foreign land. So the first thing that they need to hear is point number one in your notes, verses one through seven. Fear not, God is in control of the world. Fear not, God is in control of the world. This is the go big or go home point. He just says, I'm in charge of the whole thing. And this is the blanket statement that leads to some more um, precise statements later on in the uh, chapter. One of the commentators said, the message of the first half of chapter 40 is that the promises of the Lord can be trusted because he is the world ruler. With every event and every actor on the world stage initiated and controlled by his bidding. This is the God that we see here represented in the first half of chapter 41. And in verse 1, he calls all the peoples. He calls the distant lands. He calls the known world at the time to come. Come, invitation to come and to bring um, your judgment. Let's come together, verse 1 says, and draw near for judgment. Interestingly, he says, let the peoples, which is usually a reference to the other nations around Israel, let the peoples renew their strength. All you have to do is look back one verse. Look, look at one verse earlier in chapter 40. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Same exact phrase. And that was applied to God's people, the Israelites. And now, interestingly, it's applied to the nations. And so there's disagreement about what this means. Does it mean, is it kind of mockery? Uh, like the nations that don't serve Yahweh, they can't, they can't renew their strength. That their strength being renewed is on their own. It's not from Yahweh. Or it might be um, a, a hint 
um, a, an encouragement to the nations to this is how you renew your strength. This is how, even though youths shall faint and be weary, this is how the strength is renewed. Whatever the case, it is now applied not to Israel, but to the nations as the nations draw near for judgment. In verse 2, Yahweh speaks first and he gives his case. It's almost like a court case. And he stands up before the gathered peoples and he says, he asks a question. He says, who? And it's very interesting what he's asking. Who stirred up one from the east? Whom victory meets at every step. The the picture for stirred up is like awakened, right? When someone, right? You got to stir them up. You got to move them. You got to actually get something moving so they get up. Um, this is the picture that, that, who is this? Who's the person who woke up this person in the East? Um, and, and there's debate over who the person in the East is. Uh, it could be Nebuchadnezzar who came and defeated the Israelites. I think it's likely after Nebuchadnezzar, after the Babylonian captivity, as they look forward to um, being uh, freed from their captivity. So I think this is uh, actually, without naming the person, I think it's Cyrus who is going to be named explicitly in chapters 44 and 45. So come back in a few weeks and we'll actually see that 150 years ahead of time, Isaiah actually names the ruler. And so I think that this is who this is. Well, what's, what's from the east? Can we get that map up so that we can see this? I forgot to get my laser pointer. Um, but in the east, where you see Babylon and Ur, um, and you see the, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, um, that is the direction uh, this is referring to. You see Jerusalem on the west side of the map, uh, right above the, the word Judah. And so the picture here is, look east. Look east. Who is the one who stirred up the one from the east? And the east contains Babylon. And later, the east contains Persia, uh, which is Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian, and he gives way to various kings in the book of Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. And this is, I think, who this is referring to. Who stirred up... Thank you, Don. Who stirred up one from the east? Not only that, but whoever did it gives the nations before him. Whoever did it has cleared the way so that this one from the east is basically just mowing everybody down. Uh, The picture is of complete domination. As this king comes, he is trampling like dust. He is making stubble with his bow. He pursues and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. And we know that in the 540s and 530s, Cyrus actually conquers Babylon. But after, he has already gone all the way into modern-day Turkey, the the kingdom of Lydia, all the way over to uh, where Istanbul is today, and conquered those kings. And then he came back and conquered Babylon. And so um, Cyrus came from Persia, which is actually off the map over here, the Persian Gulf, and conquered way over here in Lydia and began to destroy the Babylonian Empire and began to move south as well. So I think that Cyrus is this one from the east. And what God is claiming is, Yahweh, God of Israel, I stirred him up. I poked Cyrus. (laughs) I'm directing him to defeat these other nations. I am in charge. I am the world ruler. And so he brings this world ruler to uh, the west to to conquer. In verse 4, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. This is an indication that it doesn't, it's not just Cyrus. It's not just Cyrus that Yahweh does this with everybody. He's in control. He's in control of other kings of other nations. He's not a tribal deity. He's not just the Israelite God. He is 
the Lord of heaven and earth. And so this is what he does. He calls the generations from the beginning and he ends verse 4, I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am he. This is a statement of eternity. It is a statement of his essence that Yahweh existed. He was first. There's no one before him. And with the last, whenever the last is, he'll be there too. And the, the picture is the whole time, he's in charge the whole time. The, the timeline, he existed before the timeline, and he'll be there at the end of the timeline, and the whole time in between, he is guiding and directing. He is in control of the world. So this is the case that he makes. Yahweh states his case, and then look how the other peoples respond. The coastlands, verse 5, have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The picture is all the peoples are freaking out. They are afraid. And now they're all kind of like giving each other pep talks so that they don't um, get too afraid, they don't get too scared, they don't run away. And they begin to give each other pep talks. And then we see that they start to create gods. The craftsman, verse 7, strengthens the goldsmith. So the guys that work at different parts um, of the uh, idol-making process are encouraging each other. (laughs) It's okay, guys, we're going to make more gods. The picture is probably one of, oh, man, Yahweh's in charge. Okay, we better build some more gods. We better build some more gods, more idols, so that we can defend ourselves. And says he smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And I think this is really ironic because I think it's reflecting on the book of Genesis. At the end of every day of creation, God looks at his creation and he doesn't go to fix things. He looks at it and he says, it's good. And here are these idol makers fashioning their idols. Saws, hammers, chisels. And they're looking at their work and saying, it's good. Isn't that good? That's good. All right. Yeah, brother, good idol. Nice. They're all encouraging each other because they are trying to, um, to hide their fear. Lastly, and they strengthen it. See that? They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. This happened last week, chapter 40. Happens again. The picture is they made an idol. I forgot to bring my little uh, BBC softball gnome in because that would have been perfect because it's gold. But um, they, they made an idol. And so that it won't topple over or fall, they nail it into the ground or onto a, a platform or onto a table. That's silly. <laughs> Right? Oh, this idol that we've created, this God that we've made, we, we better, better tent peg him down. Right? The wind comes, might blow the idol over. And, and the picture is, is meant to be, you're meant to see it and go, that's stupid. That's really stupid to put your hope and your trust in something that might fall over and that you made. That you made with your hands. I made it and now I'll worship the God that I made. It's foolish. It's silly. And it's what the peoples are caught up in. And the picture is meant to be a huge contrast. Here is Yahweh guiding world affairs and world events. He existed before. He'll be there at the end. And here are these idols that are made, that are um, made by guys that are afraid and they're encouraging each other. Hey, good idol. This is meant to show the vast gulf between Yahweh and the gods of the peoples. There's arguments over which, which gods, which peoples. And I would just say, why argue about it? Let's just say all of them. <laughs> the Babylonians, the Persians, the Canaanites, the Egyptian gods, all of them are made to look foolish. So we don't need to fear because God's in control of the world. There are not, there are, 
there is a supernatural realm, and there are um, Satan and his demons are powerful, and they are strong, but they are created. God created them. You read the book of Job. Um, Satan can't touch Job unless he gets permission from God. That's called a leash. Right? He, he doesn't go anywhere unless God allows him to. And so we do not need to fear because God is in control of the world. Point number two, fear not, God keeps his promises. Fear not, God keeps his promises. This is verses 8 through 10. And there's a clear turning of the topic. Verse 8, but you, Israel, the, the turn from the nations and the peoples of the world shifts back to Israel. But you, Israel, my servant. And that, that term is going to become very important starting next, well, in three weeks when we touch on that. My servant is going to become very important between chapters 42 and through the end of the 50s, chapter 55, I think. And this, this servant picture is going to be really important. And so we need to see it for what it is. This is not um, Downton Abbey downstairs servants. It's also not um, chattel slavery in the south servant. Um, this is biblical slavery or servanthood mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. It differs a whole lot from the kind of slavery that we think of. As Americans were conditioned um, to think of slavery as that awful institution that existed in our country for far too long. Um, this is not the same kind of thing. Servant um, could be similar to merely someone who's owned. But a lot of times the Bible refers to servants as ones who actually have a place of honor in the household. Um, so you think of Abraham and his servant Eliezer, who goes and searches for a wife for Abraham's son. <laughs> you don't just give that to some new guy on the staff. You give that to your trusted servant. Moses is often called the servant of God. Um, I, I just went through and found it. Abraham, Job, Jacob, Moses, Caleb, Joshua, David, Isaiah himself, Zerubbabel. Mary calls herself a servant. Jesus sees himself as a servant. In the New Testament, Paul, James, Peter, Jude, and John all call themselves servants. And, and what, we, what I want you to see here is that this is a p- position of honor. Um, it's, not, it's, it's not a position um, of, of denigration. Um, it is a position of honor. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. This is going back to the book of Genesis, back to the beginnings of the Jewish people. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The, the country was known, the people was known by his new name, Israel. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. See, that's a different thing going on with servant friend. That is a much different picture, and I want us to keep that in mind. He, he goes back and talks about Abraham, the one who Yahweh covenanted with. He made a covenant with Abraham. He plucked him out um, from the east, from the east, and brought him to the land of Canaan. This is the covenant love of Yahweh. He chose him. Look at verse 9. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. Meaning, you weren't anything special. I didn't go to the palaces and, and, and bring Israel out. I called a guy who lived in another place and I made a nation out of him. Saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. This is a great picture of God's election of a people. He chose this people. He chose them and he's not going to give them up. He's not going to turn away. He will not cast them off. So the people who are in captivity need this message. 
Why shouldn't they fear? Because God keeps his promises. Even the promises to Abraham, who at this point is 1,500 years in the past. This Abraham, this man who, my friend, Yahweh is saying, who I made a covenant with, I will not cast off his people. For verse 10, fear not. This is the first of three times we hear this. Fear not, for I am with you. For I am with you. This is the picture we get around Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the ultimate reason not to be afraid. In fact, it's said throughout the scriptures. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Fear not. I am with you. I'll be with you. Think of Moses. Lord, I'm not no good at speaking. I'll be with your mouth. I'll be with you. You can do this, Moses. I'll be with you. Caleb and Joshua come back from surveying the land and the other 10 spies are afraid. Oh, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And, and all Caleb and Joshua have to say is, but God's with us. Like, we can go take this land. God's with us. See, that dispels the fear because God is with them. I learned verse 10 as a child at my church uh, in a song. So I don't know if you do this, but this is a good idea. In your Bible, um, I have little notes. I don't even think those are actually real all i know is a whole note is like a oval right but i have like little flags going up this just reminds me when i see it oh this is a song that i learned so some of our songs come directly from scripture so just an idea maybe you want to start marking those places in your bible where songs that you love come from um i learned this as a song almost word for word And, and so the picture is just hey fear not god's with you don't be dismayed i am your god i will strengthen you i will help you I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And the picture is God doesn't have like, like a righteous right hand and kind of like a normal looking left hand. God doesn't have hands, okay? He's spirit. Okay? But the picture of the right hand is the hand of power, the hand that holds the scepter, the hand that holds the sword, okay? The hand that does deals. This is the powerful hand. This is the hand that acts. And the picture here is that God's right hand, his righteous right hand will work righteousness. He will work rightly with his right hand. He will do the right things with his right hand. He will act in a way that is righteous. So so I think we need to get that out of the abstract. Okay, so what does God's righteous right hand look like? God's righteous right hand is the same hand that shaped and formed the world, that crafted Adam out of dust. It's the same mighty hand that led the Israelites out from a world power the Egyptians. Specifically, Yahweh says, I will bring you out with my right hand. The same tiny hand that developed and grew inside the womb of a Galilean girl. The same hand that gripped Peter as he began to sink beneath the waters of the lake. The same hand that Jesus' sheep can never be snatched from. The same hands that were stretched out on a cross and pierced by nails for you and for me. The same ones that Jesus displayed to the eleven and then to doubting Thomas. The same right hand that one like a son of man placed on an elderly man named John who was on his face and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the righteous right hand of God. This is the little summary through the scripture. The righteous right hand of God, he will uphold, he will strengthen. And this is for us as well as the people of God. So point number three, just really quickly, is the next three verses, 11 through 13, and this is fear not, God helps his people. 
God helps his people. Um, this, is, this is astonishing. Because the master doesn't help the servant. The servant helps the master, right? But the, the picture here is of a God who stoops down and helps his people. Look at verse 11 through 13 basically say, because of time I'm going to summarize this, basically say, all your enemies, don't worry about them. They're gone. They're gone. Have you ever looked at a picture even of modern day Israel? You're tiny. Little tiny and huge nations around it that are opposed. It's been like that from the beginning. Egypt, superpower, Assyria, Babylon, um, all of these nations surrounding is tiny little Israel. And here God says, don't worry about them. They're going to disappear. I will fight your battles for you. And then he says it again. Look at verse 13. For I, Yahweh, your God, your God, your God, I hold your right hand. That's his left hand, right? Holding your right hand. The, the picture of the father holding the little kid. I've got, your, I've got your right hand. I've got your hand. I'm holding it. I'll help you. Come on, let's go. This is the God who says then, fear not. I am the one who helps you. You don't have to make it up as you go along. Okay, God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who don't deserve it. God lifts them up. Fear not, I am the one who helps you. God helps his people. Point number four, fear not, God redeems and includes his people. God redeems and includes his people. Verse 14 does not start out on a positive note. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. What is that? Uh, I don't think it's derogatory. God's not calling names. Now, he does do that at times, but God is not calling um, his people like, you little worms. (laughs) A worm is little. And, and a worm is totally at the whim of the rain, of human feet, okay, of animals, of birds, right? This worm is little. It's small. It can't really do much. And that's the picture of, of Israel here. Just little, little Jacob, little worm. Don't fear, worm. The worm has a lot to fear. The worm has a lot to fear. Fear not, you worm. Jacob, you men of Israel, hearing that he just just calls a worm yes yes he did i am the one who helps you declares yahweh little worm i'll help you i'll pick you up i'll put you where you need to be you're not on your own your redeemer is the holy one of israel we've talked about this pastor ron has talked about the holy one of israel being this this name for god throughout the book of isaiah and in the second half that we're now in it is often tied to this other title redeemer redeemer holy one of israel and it's the picture of, if you've ever studied the book of Ruth, it's the picture of the kinsman redeemer, of, um, of Boaz, of a close person in the tribe or in the family who has the responsibility and the right to redeem, to buy back, to acquire, so as to help that person and that family continue. So the picture of Yahweh as redeemer is he's not going to let little worm Jacob die out. This God who keeps his promises, this God who helps, he also redeems. He's, gonna, he's not going to allow his people to be sold off forever. And not only that, now he includes it. Look at verse 15. This is cool. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. Okay, this, this is a good one. So um, can we get that picture up? Okay. Oh, this is hard to see. Um, this is a threshing sledge. Okay. This is a, a remade one. Um, this is actually in Israel. 
um, so you can see it. Here is the threshing sledge. Okay, here's two different kinds. This one, do you see the blades on it? And this one has rocks put in the bottom. Well, the picture is you put the sledge behind an, an ox or a horse or a donkey. And as you get all of the wheat in from the harvest, you begin to run the sledge over the top of all of the wheat so that the kernels get separated from the stalks. And it begins to make, uh, from long stalks of wheat, they begin to get chopped up and chopped up as the sledge runs over them, making them smaller and smaller. And so here is what Yahweh saying. He's saying, I'm going to make you a sledge. I'm going to make you uh, this instrument, this tool of mine that does a very important job. So little worm, Jacob, you get an important job. I'm going to make you into a sledge. Watch what the sledge does. Okay? It's new. It's sharp. It has teeth. It's the newest model. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. Mountains. Mountains. Thresh the mountains. So run the, run the threshing sledge over the mountains and the mountains become flat and turn into valleys. This is world-changing kind of stuff. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them. There's also a picture here of winnowing. Here's a man um, in Israel winnowing. And so he takes the fork. There was a fork in the previous picture. He takes the winnowing fork and he, after the sledge has done its work, he puts the fork in and he tosses it up in the air. And the wind blows away the chaff. Because the chaff is, is light and it has no substance to it. But the kernels of the wheat, what you need to make bread, fall to the ground and you isolate them. So go to the next picture. Here's the chaff, okay? They collected it for this picture. Here's the chaff that just blows away. Here's the wheat. Okay? That's not going anywhere um, the way that the chaff is. So the picture is that God's going to make Israel a threshing sledge. And he, they're going to be a tool in his hands to do his work to do his work, and to do his work to the mountains. The mountains often stand for the nations surrounding Israel. He's going to do this so that Israel's enemies and Israel's fears are alleviated. He will not just, he will not only just, he will not only do it, he will use them to do it. He includes, this God includes his people in it. And what's the result? The result, the end of verse 16, is you shall rejoice in Yahweh. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Notice the parallelism here. This, this word, um, glory, actually comes from the word hallel, where we get hallelujah. Um, it, it, means to, it means to praise, um, or it can also mean to, to boast in. And so some of your versions actually say boast in. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. The picture is, is that the Israelites are rescued, redeemed, included by Yahweh. And so their, their response is to rejoice but not like, yeah, we did it. The, the, their, their response is that um, rarest of humble responses after victory to say, he did it. We're going to rejoice in Yahweh. We're going to rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. It's him we're going to rejoice in and take our boast. We're not going to boast about ourselves. We didn't do it. We're going to glory in Yahweh. In fact, there's also a picture of this kind of like sharing like, God's going to get the glory for what he did, and we just kind of get to bask in it. Just kind of get to be there and bask in it, rejoice in the glory that comes to God from what he does. What, a, what, a, what, a, what an incredible thing to think of, that, that God includes his people. He includes us. He makes us instruments in his hands. Uh, next, the next point is, fear not, God can provide for his people. This is something that we fear often. 
How many of you have worried about money this year? You've worried about money. Okay. That was less people than I thought. All right. How about, you know, how many of you ever worried about money? <laughs> yes, we, we worry about finances all the time. And now we have apps on our phones that we can worry about them whenever we want. It's just, I, I haven't checked my retirement in 17 minutes. Let's check it again. Whoa, it went down. Oh, no. Maybe you need to delete that app. I don't know. but <laughs> Maybe I need to delete that app. This is the God who provides. God can provide for his people. The picture in 17 through 20 is poor and needy people in the desert, in the wilderness. I think when, when Americans usually when we think of wilderness, we think of woods. Let me show you a picture of wilderness. Okay, this... The, oh, hey, Steve, look, there you are. And there's Fred and Sharon and me and Amy are off in the distance. Um, this, is the, this is the wilderness of Zin. This is where um, uh, the children of Israel wandered. Looks inviting. Do you notice what's on the ground? Yeah, so when, when we think desert, often we think Sahara, think wilderness or desert in Israel, think rocks. Lots of turn-your-ankle kind of rocks. Um, I think actually that Gene is down here getting helped by Steve because it was a rocky terrain. It was hard to get your footing. You should still come to Israel with us. But this is a picture of wilderness. Now go to the next one. That's the wilderness of Paran, another wilderness that the Israelites um, wandered in. Um, look at all the vegetation. It's lush and shady and looks like you build a huge metropolis there or not. Okay, so the picture is poor and needy people living in that land. What do they need? They need everything. <laughs> they don't have anything. They need shelter. They need water. And this is what Yahweh says he will answer his people. He will provide. Look at verse 18. He'll open rivers on the bare heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. Now, there's question over whether or not this is meant to be taken literally. Um, like God is going to make um, pools and going to make um, things sprout in the wilderness and in the desert. And often people will point to what modern, the modern state of Israel has done in making the desert bloom. Um, and I, I think that, that, that probably can be uh, a secondary application here. But the, the picture is actually more symbolic because the people are in exile. And to get back, they have to go through the wilderness to get back home. They can't do it. They need a miracle. Also, what part of scripture does this remind you of? Water in the desert, perhaps? Moses, the Exodus, the children of Israel. There's certainly echoes here of God did it before. He'll do it again. He'll make water come out of the rock. He'll provide for them. Verse 19 has all these trees that he's going to plant. The trees that are mentioned here don't grow in the wilderness. They grow next to water. There is no water in the wilderness. So that's a miracle. You can't grow trees like that in the wilderness. And the reason that he does it, look at verse 20. Why will God do this? That they may see and know. You could argue that they is Israel. You could argue that they is the peoples. Either way, God does this for people to see, to know, to consider, to understand that Yahweh has done this. His signature's on it. No one else could have done this. The Holy One of Israel, there it is again, has created it. Bara, the same word that's used in the Genesis account. God created the heavens and the earth. God creates in the midst of the wilderness. 
Lastly, point number six, one more reason to fear not. Fear not, idols and idolaters are nothing. Fear not, idols and idolaters are nothing. The Israelites are in a different country. They are under subjection, they're in captivity, and their captors worship other gods who seem to be more powerful because Yahweh lost. Yahweh's temple, his house is destroyed. It's knocked down. All his stuff's taken. The Ark of the Covenant's gone in a warehouse somewhere. Okay, but all of, all of the gold, all of the finery, all of, all of this stuff has been destroyed. So it sure looks like Marduk, king of Babylon, and all the other gods of the peoples are much power, more powerful than Yahweh. But Yahweh's going to show, actually here, by a, a, a test case. And we are so far behind, I've got to fly through this, okay? Um, verses 21 to 24, what can the gods do? The, the, the case is laid. Okay, gods. All right, gods, go ahead. Tell us how the past is coming true now. Go look at the stories of the past and t- make sense of it for us. Um, or, or if you can't do that, then, then predict the future. Okay, go ahead and do that. Because a, a great mark of a god is being able to be powerful enough to say what's going to happen. It did not inspire trust in the people if the god says, I don't know. It inspires trust when the god says, don't worry, slaughter a few more lambs and I'll do this. Okay? The, the picture here um, is a challenge. Look at verse 23. Tell us what is to come hereafter. Predict the future. That we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. Basically, that's do something. Do anything. Hello? <laughs> do something. What we're talking about? We're talking about idols. This is really sad, but have you been to, um, have you been to some of uh, the auto places in the area and you go in to get your car worked on and there's a little, a little idol right there? A little fat bronze or gold guy? It's really sad. He's not doing anything. He can't accept the food offering. He can't do it. Because he's just a piece of metal. That's it. He's a piece of metal that some person made. This is foolish. Behold, verse 24, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. You have negative points. (laughs) An abomination is he who chooses you. It's against nature. It is against the way we've been made to turn our back on the creator and worship created things. How foolish to worship the gift and not the giver. This is what's happening. So, Yahweh says, okay, so you can't answer. All right, I'll answer. Verse 25 to 29, what can God do? Well, God, in verse 25, stirs up one from the north. And if you're paying attention, wait a second. I wasn't asleep at this part of the sermon at the beginning when he said, stir one up from the east. So, what's he talking about? Is it east or north? Is it northeast? (laughs) Actually, it might be. (laughs) Okay? But um, anyone who ever attacked Israel unless it was Egypt, of course, okay, had to come from the north. You don't cross this desert. That is not a good strategy. Not a good idea. Let's stay next to the Tigris and Euphrates River. Let's stay where it's relatively, we can sack um, villages and take all their food. There ain't nothing in here. This is the Arabian Desert. There still is nothing there, except for like roads to get between Iraq and Jordan. That's, that's it. There's nothing there. So if you came from the east, if you were stirred up from the east, like verse 2, you still would have to come from the north to attack Israel. And we know that Cyrus, who I think this is talking about, already defeated Lydia and his empire began to span this entire place, which is, hey, check that out, north of Israel. 
So God has stirred up this person. I think it's the same person. From the east, Cyrus. From the north, Cyrus. He has come from the rising of the sun, which, by the way, is east. (laughs) And he shall call upon my name. Uh, There's debate about what that means. Cyrus, certainly, there's no indication he was ever a worshiper of Yahweh. But Cyrus, we know, frees God's people in 539, 538, and lets them go back to Jerusalem. He shall trample on rulers as a mortar, as the potter treads the clay. Um, At the time, Cyrus put together the largest empire the world had ever seen. It stretched from India to the doors of Europe to Egypt, three continents. Who declared it from the beginning, verse 26, that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right? No one did. No one did it. Except for, verse 27, I, I, Yahweh, I was the first to set his eye on. Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Probably Isaiah, this herald, this one proclaiming good news. And then he looks around, verse 28, when I look around, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor. The idols and the idolaters. The gods and the ones who worship them. There's just no one, there's no one there. Which doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means on the, on, uh, in, on the football, the score. The score is a lot to very little slash negative. They're not, they're not there. When I ask, who when I ask gives an answer? Behold, they're all a delusion. They barely exist. And if they do, it's, it's a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. That picture empty is the same from Genesis 1-2, without form. This, this picture is of chaos. There's just no form to it. It's just, ah, it's chaos. And the ironic thing about that is that the Mesopotamian gods and the Egyptian gods and over the, the Greek gods, they brought order to chaos, right? So the gods of the sea would bring order to the sea so it wouldn't get out of control. And the gods of the mountains and the gods of the weather and the gods, and they, they would all bring order. And what God is saying is actually it's all just chaos. I'm the one who gives order. I'm the one who's in charge. So you need not fear. Quickly, uh, what can we learn um, about ourselves, about others, about God? Idolatry is alive and well. So just because we don't see very many idols lying around, um, it doesn't mean that idolatry is is gone and we don't have to worry about it. Uh, The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 that greed is idolatry. Just put an equal sign. If you're greedy, you're worshiping an idol. Stuff, money, status, homes, cars, whatever. If you're greedy... You are an idolater. So idolatry is alive and well because all we have to do is look in our own hearts. It's Christmas time. Did you make your list? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really easy for us to to be greedy, to want more, to want more than we need, to want more than we should have. And so we must know, we must be convinced, and we must help convince each other over and over and over again. That the idols of sex and money and power and sports and status and stuff and so many other things cannot deliver on their promise. They don't deliver. Idolatry is alive and well. John Calvin called the human heart an idol factory. We just crank them out. Get rid of one, make another one. We have to constantly and consistently fight against idols. Second one there is fear God. You should fear. You should fear God. This is a fearsome God we've just met. He's in charge. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. I mean, they can just kill you. <laughs> Don't fear them. And after that, I have nothing more they can do. That's all they can do. They can only kill you. Oh, no big deal. 
I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus knew this God. And he says, you had better be afraid of this God if you do not trust, believe, obey him. Because after he kills, he can throw into hell. Uh, One author said, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God. Which, if you're a Christian, you turn your thoughts and you look to the cross and the empty tomb and you marvel that there is no more wrath for you. There's no more condemnation. It was poured out on Jesus so that if you, sinner, worm, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who we're celebrating his birth this Christmas, if you put your faith in him, you will no longer be under his wrath. But until you do, you exist as a child of wrath. Let me plead with you this Christmas season. See beyond the schmaltzy, see beyond the carols, see beyond the lights, see the infant in the manger, see his mission. Listen, God is with us. He is. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He'll be with you. He'll be in you. Um, Jesus said to the disciples as he left, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's power. That's control. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Oh man, that's a big mission. God, I don't think I can do it. Jesus, what are you talking about? And behold, I am with you. Okay, so you can do it. I am with you always to the end of the age. We're not to the end of the age. He's with us. Paul said to the Thessalonians, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Revelation 21, 3 through 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling, of, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Fear not. Father, we thank you for Isaiah 41. We have so many reasons, we think, to be afraid, to fear And yet, if we know you, Father, we know that there is no reason to fear. So help us when we do, because we are a fearful people. We worry. We're anxious about things we can't control anyway. The things that you are already in control of, that you have planned, that you have put into place, that you have seen. So help us to trust you. God, take away the fear that exists in hearts this morning, in minds this morning, finals are upon us. Lord, um, loved ones are on their deathbed. So many things are out of our control. But help us not to fear. Because you are the world ruler. You have provided a way out. A way of escape. A way from the captivity of sin and Satan and death. You sent your son 
So we know that you're trustworthy. We know that you can do what you promised. Go with us today, Lord. Help us not to fear. In Jesus' name, amen.